0: Welcome to the Fielder Church Podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us, and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. This morning, we are going to talk about the most abused and misused verse in the entire Bible. It's a verse I'm pretty sure you're familiar with. In fact, if I were to start the verse, I'll bet you you could finish it with me. It's Philippians 4.13. Here's what it says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've heard of that verse before, haven't you? i, I got to be honest with you. My kids, they absolutely hate that verse of Scripture, which sounds terrible. The preacher's kids are hating some Scripture, but, but i got to confess it's my fault. Uh, I forced it upon them because I use that Scripture as a bad dad joke, and I do it all the time. Anytime they ask me for something, that's how I respond. So my son Max will say, hey, hey, Dad, pass me the controller. And I'll say, Max? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And i hand him the controller. And he goes, ugh, every single time. Abby will say, hey, Daddy, can you, can you help me with my physics homework? And I'll say, Abby, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which actually, to do her physics work, I need Christ to strengthen me because that stuff's crazy. But I use this all the time. And my kids are so sick of it, I have abused that verse of Scripture. But, but I, I do it playfully. You know, they know I'm misusing it on purpose. But there are so many people who aren't playing around when they misuse that verse. That verse is often called the Superman verse. It's a verse that that makes you feel like you can do the impossible. As long as you just believe enough, I can do anything I put my mind to and believe in through Christ who strengthens me. It's the number one verse of Christian athletes. They love that verse. You might remember Evander Holyfield is about to fight Mike Tyson, and he's got on his robe Philippians 4.13 right there showing I'm going to kick this guy's tail because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You, you know about Steph Curry. I'm sure his line, I can do all things. You see it in that. You see it. Tim Tebow, back when he was playing college ball, he'd have his eye black and it'd say Philippians 4.13 on it. You, you can go to, there's a guy, his name is John Jones. He's a martial artist. He's got literally tattooed across his chest, Philippians 4.13. And they all have it there to say like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this. I may be the underdog, but I'm going to take it over because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's kind of become like our flare prayer verse, right? You know, like I'm I'm so not prepared for this. So, oh, God, I didn't study for this test at all, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, God, help me pass this test. I didn't train for this marathon at all, but (laughs) there goes the the shotgun. It's time to start. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're going to go for it as if it's the it's the one verse that will make us do the impossible. I I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. That is not what that verse is talking about at all. That verse is not a Superman verse that as long as you believe enough, you can do everything because Christ is going to give you the strength to do the impossible. That's not what that verse is talking about. It has a context, and the context is very different. The context of that verse actually has to do with money and finding contentment, whether you have money or not, so that you can be generous with that money. That's the context of that verse. But that's not the way we typically use it. And so I'm going to have to detangle a little bit some of our understanding of that verse to really see what Paul's point was when he used it in Philippians chapter four. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to finish up this morning our journey through the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter four, I want you to find verse 10. We're going to start there in a moment. Now, before we start it, we always have guests who tune in. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of the service with us. We are ending today a multi-month journey through the book of Philippians. where We've gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse, digging into this passage of scripture. And this morning as we end it, we're going to see Paul return to the same theme he's been dealing with over and over and over again in this book, the theme of joy. And he's going to tell us, like he's done so many times before, that his joy had nothing to do with his circumstances. And it's in that context that we hear Philippians 4.13, and we see what's before it and after it. So why don't you finish up the letter to the Philippians with me? Philippians chapter 4, beginning verse 10. Here's what it says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint, saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So here we have the ending of the letter, and there you see Philippians 4.13 nestled into it. But I hope you could see, and when you read the larger context, this isn't about being able to win a boxing match or a basketball game or a football game or doing the impossible. It's really a verse that talks about how to find contentment even when the situation seems impossible. So so in order to understand his logic and how he arrives at this so that we can detangle all the mess of how we've looked at this verse without the context, we need to go back to the beginning in verse 10. You begin to see his logic unfold. In verse 10, he talks about his joy. He has this great joy. It's the only time he says he rejoiced greatly. It was, it was a hyper joy that he had that at length, he says, you have revived your concern for me. Now in verse 10, you don't know what that means. What, what does it mean they revived their concern? But when you flip over to verses 15 through 18, you see exactly what that is. Those verses tell us that it was a monetary gift that they had given to Paul. They had collected something. They entered into partnership by giving to him. And he says in verse 16, they sent help. Verse 18, he says, I'm well supplied because I got the gifts that you sent me through Epaphroditus. So it's referring to the fact that they took up a collection, a love offering, and they sent it to Paul when he was in prison in Rome to, to meet his need. And apparently that moved him deeply to rejoice greatly. Now, part of what stirred Paul's heart was the fact that he knew how huge of a sacrifice this was for the Philippians. Because this, this people, the church in Philippi, was a very poor people. They were a lot of people who were rejected by society because they wouldn't worship Caesar, because they weren't a part of the, their admiration for Rome like the rest of the Philippians were. And so they were outcast. Many have lost their jobs, lost their relationships, lost their families. They were poor people. And yet they, in their poverty, brought together this huge collection in order to bless Paul when he's in prison. And the thought of their sacrifice moved him deeply. It moved him so much, he was willing to say something absolutely profound. He said, because of your gift, verse 15, you've entered into partnership with me through your giving. Now, that word entered partnership with in Greek is soon koinonia. Soon means with, koinonia means to have fellowship with, to be a partaker of. And what he's saying is that through your giving to me in prison, you have become a co-laborer with me, a fellow participant with me in the advancement of the gospel. Now, I I want you to stop and, and think about the implications of that just for a moment. What Paul is saying is absolutely profound. He's saying that simply by the act of you collecting money and giving that to the cause of the advancement of the gospel, you are now a co-laborer with me in this as if you're right here with me as I'm planting churches and making disciples. In fact, in verse 17, he says, I actually see that you have fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, their giving has actually produced a fruit that they get credited for. Even though Paul is doing the work, they get the credit. In fact, in the Greek, it's a banking term. It has been accredited to them. It is now on their ledger before Almighty God. Now get this. Paul is going around the Roman Empire and he's sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith in Christ. And through their giving, they get that credited to them as if they were with Paul. Paul is planting churches all over the place. And every time he plants a church, the Philippians get credit for it as if they're with Paul on the church planting team, simply through their giving. Now think about the implications of that for you and for me, those of us who give to the church. Many of you, you're you're tithers. You give your 10% to the church wanting to advance the gospel ministry. Some of you give even more because you so believe in the ministry. And here's what it's saying. Our church has a vision to plant churches all over the world, to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. And every single time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of this church, those of you who have given to this ministry get to be partakers of that. It's credited to you as if you were a part of it. When we sent Kevin and Rebecca Gibbs to, to Discovery Church in Seattle, when we sent Charlie and Audrey Houck over to San Diego to plant a church, you who give to this cause, to the cause in the church, get credit as if you are part of the church planning team. We, we, we commissioned somebody. On Friday, we sent somebody out overseas to a, an area where they don't have much access to the gospel. And when people hear the gospel, when they come to faith, those of you who give get credited to that simply through your giving. Does that not shock you? Now, now, I always got to be cautious. Some of you can hear me wrong. I, this happens all the time. Well, I heard Jason say, I don't have to do anything anymore. All I got to do is give some money and I get it credited to me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you should stop sharing the gospel. You should stop going. God is going to call you. Somebody's got to do the work. God is going to call many of you to share the gospel with your neighbors. Some of you to go plant churches and be missionaries at the ends of the earth. I'm not saying you shouldn't go. But what I am saying is that at least, at a minimum, every single one of us can be partners of the gospel work through Giving. What a beautiful picture. I'm I'm so excited about something. In in a month, we're going to have an opportunity to review uh, a a giving pledge that many of you made through something called Momentum. So a couple of years ago, we had a generosity initiative that was a two-year initiative where we were raising funds to plant churches, to start Spanish language ministry, to expand our South Oaks campus. And many of you were very faithful. You gave and you've been giving all throughout. And we're going to get a chance to stop and to tell the story of what that giving did. And some of the stories will blow you away. And you're going to discover that you get to be a partner in that because of your giving. I cannot wait for you to hear about it. And then we're going to have a chance to tell you about new opportunities. Those of you who've been given to momentum or who want to be a part, you're going to be able to extend that for another year because God has opened up a new door for us through our online ministries. Many of you watching this are recipients of that ministry. And we're going to be able to expand that ministry. And you're going to have a new opportunity. God's going to invite you to, to give toward that cause. And you're going to see the great ways that you can be a co-laborer and participant of that, even through your giving. I cannot wait. It'll be coming in a month. So be on the lookout for it. But for now, here's what I want you to hear. Paul has told us that even through just giving, we get to be co-participants, co-laborers of gospel ministry gets credited to us. That alone should compel us to want to give. But it gets even better. He says our giving doesn't just make us co-laborers. It makes us people who please almighty God. That's what verse 18, look back at verse 18. That's what it was saying. Paul says, I have received full payment, talking about their gift, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Listen to this. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, that gift that you gave to me was pleasing to Almighty God. It delighted God himself. Now, I I gotta be cautious. Again, there's a number of things I gotta be cautious with as I go through this message. I am not saying that when you give money, you can purchase God's affection and grace because those things are not for sale. What I am saying is that when you believe the generosity of God towards you by saving you through Christ Jesus, when you know all he's done for you and therefore you are compelled to give to the cause of Christ so other people can know the good news of the gospel that you know, when you give according to that way, God is pleased with it. His heart is delighted by it. Now, I don't know about you, But the thought of me being able to put a smile on God's face just by my generosity, that is so encouraging. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. But I got to forewarn you, there are going to be things that fight against that impulse inside of you. Because radical generosity, as beautiful it is on paper, it's very hard to live out because it is not natural. Our natural self wants to keep, if I could just get a little more into savings, if I could just buy this or buy that, if if I could... If I could get what I need, then I'll I'll be okay. And as long as we have that attitude, we won't ever be able to give and give extravagantly. And so this fight for us to be radically generous is going to require some learning on our side. So I want to give you four truths that you need to know if you want to become a radically generous person, the kind of person that pleases the very heart of God. So if you haven't been taking notes, now's the time to start taking notes. I'm going to have it on your screen for you. but, But let me start with the first thing. Here's what you need to know. You cannot be generous without contentment. Let me say that again. You absolutely cannot be generous without contentment. Here's what I mean. As long as you are not content with what God has given you, if you're always pursuing more, you will never be generous because the moment you give away, you're afraid you won't have what you think you need. The only way you'll be generous is if you're content with what what God has given you and therefore you can give away the rest. Generosity flows from contentment. This is why Paul, at the very beginning of this passage, moves right into contentment. He actually does something a little bit weird after saying, thank you for reviving your concern for me. He basically says, but I don't need what you're given. Look at at it, back in verses 11 through 13. So verse 10, he says, thank you for reviving your concern for me. And then verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, imagine, imagine that. Imagine you'd given money to church, and I write you a card and I say, hey, thank you so much for the gift, but we didn't really need it, I send it to you. Like, how sorry of a thank you is that? that that's what Paul's doing. You're almost going like, Paul, where's your gratitude for their gift? But there's a reason why he said what he said. He was saying, thank you, Jesus, for the generosity of you Philippians. But I need you, Philippians, to know that I didn't need the gift. And here's the reason why he needed to say it. If they thought that he was happy because he received the gift, then the natural conclusion would be he was unhappy because he was in need. But now he's got money and now he's happy because the situation is better. In other words, his joy would hinge upon his circumstances. But Paul, through the whole letter, has been trying to tell them joy does not come from circumstances. So he wants to make sure they understand the reason he's joy-filled is not because his circumstances are changed. It's because they've been given. They've been giving. Their heart has been changed. He wants to make sure he realize, that they realize he has had ups and downs in his life and he has learned how to be content no matter what is going on. That, that's what verse 12 is really getting into. He's saying, guys, I, I've, I've been up and down. I've been brought low, I've had need, I've I've faced hunger, I've faced need, but I've been high, I've had abounding, I've had plenty, I've had abundance. He's basically describing his life, the ups and downs of his life. That brother had more extremes than winter in Texas. 90 degrees one day, 10 degrees the next day, that's his life, just boom, 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 all over the place. If you read the scriptures, you, you see quickly that Paul struggled with intense suffering throughout his life because he went through so much for the sake of Christ. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned and left for dead, he was persecuted, he was shackled, he was, he was hungry. I mean, he endured so much suffering, but he also knew abundance. In fact, many people believe that Paul grew up in affluence. He was, he was trained by the leading rabbi, Gamaliel, which you would only get that kind of training if you had the, the money to be noted and, and recognized for it. He, he was a Roman citizen, which was very hard to come by, very rare around the Roman empire. And most likely is because he came from a wealthy family. So he grew up likely in wealth and affluence. He knew what it meant to have plenty. He knew what it meant to be in need. And what he says is no matter what's going on, I know how to be content, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. Now I'm gonna do a little little time out here. I'm, I'm gonna state what I think is obvious. I think for most of us, we're impressed that Paul could find contentment even when he doesn't have much. But it's really shocking that he would say, and I found the secret of contentment when I had plenty, as if that's a struggle. Like, yeah, yeah, it's hard to be content when you don't have much, but Paul, who cares if you're content when you have a lot? Of course you're content when you have plenty, but what Paul is saying is, no, it is just as hard to be content when you have a little or whether you have a lot. In fact, if you were to go to the scriptures, uh, the Old Testament talks about this. You go to Proverbs chapter 30, verses eight and nine. Listen to how it talks about the danger on both sides. Verse eight, second half of it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. He says, don't let me be rich. And don't let me be poor, because if I'm poor, I'm going to steal and profane the name of God. But don't let me be rich because I might deny you. And if I deny you, I'll heap struggle upon myself. I know you're going, okay, well, Jason, I see the wisdom in that. Yeah, right. If you have too much, you might think you're self-sufficient and you don't need God. And maybe you deny God, but that doesn't mean you'll be discontent. Well, I want you to know, absolutely, you'll be discontent. There is discontentment that comes with riches. And if you struggle to understand that, let me go ahead and prove it to you scientifically. So there was a study that was done. This was about 11 years ago. It was 2010. It was done by two Princeton economists. And they were studying what they called the happiness index. And what they were looking for is could they find a correlation between someone's salary or standard income level, standard of living, and their happiness. And so they, they polled through Gallup polling 450,000 people. And they, were at, they asked them questions about their level of happiness. And what they discovered is that there is a magic number for the happiest people in the United States of America for a family of four back in 2010. And what they found is that if you have below that income, it's like a bell curve, right? So if you have well below that income, you have a lot of struggle, you, don't, you have medical needs, you have, you're hungry a lot, so there's a lot of pain and misery. And as you get closer to that magic number, you, your happiness level goes up. And then there's a perfect income for a family of four who these tend to be the happiest people out of hundreds of thousands of people polled. But get this, after it, it begins to decrease again. And the more money you make, the more you become discontented. And they talk through it. The reasons why is because you have so many new stresses when you have more. You're worried about the stock market. What's going to take place? Is it going up and down? You lose sleep over it. You work so hard to earn money. You never take time to enjoy it. You know, spend time with your family. There's a lot of divorce rate with people who are, who are wealthy. There's a lot of suicide rate because it's lonely and it doesn't satisfy. So all these people who think getting rich is the answer, they're missing it because of the bell curve. And do you know what the number is? I think you'll find it surprising. So a family of four, likely with two parents working, so a dual income, the combined income was $75,000. That was the magic number that the people who made $75,000 tended to be the happiest people. If you made less, it tended to lower. If you made more, it tended to lower. Now, if you were to translate that over to 2021, that magic number of a family of four becomes around $84,000 know, because of inflation. But that's the magic number. So people who make more than that begin to have a decreasing level of contentment. Listen, that's not the way our brains are typically wired. Most of the time we think, if I make more, I'll be happier. I mean, you get a six-figure income, that'd be great. And this is actually saying, no, it'll be worse for you. We want more because we see people, they got nicer cars, they got nicer houses, they take nicer vacations, their Instagram looks nicer than ours. We're going, man, if I just had what they had, then I could be happy. And what this is scientifically showing us is that's a farce. It's not true. It actually decreases because it adds stress. But listen, God's word has been telling us that same thing. If you were to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, listen to what Solomon says. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. In other words, you keep trying to make more, but the stressors and all that won't compensate for the, the money that's coming in. It will not make you happy. It'll bring discontentment to you. In fact, it will ruin you. If you go to, we've read this before in the past, but 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul, the apostle, speaking here, says this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's saying this stuff, wealth is dangerous, It's not just like you can play with it and everything's okay. When you seek wealth and you pursue wealth, it's a snare and a trap that can lead to destruction. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. I'm not saying money's bad. It could sound like I'm saying money's bad. Money's actually neutral. Money's not bad, but it is dangerous. And we have to know that. Because I think in the United States of America, perhaps our greatest danger is we don't realize how much discontentment comes with trying to get more and wanting to have more. Now, I know what you're thinking around. You go, okay, well, Jason... Are you saying that unless I have a family of four with like $84,000, and I can't be happy? No, 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 you're missing, you're missing the point entirely. If that's what you're thinking. Paul's point was, it doesn't matter where I am on the bell curve, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether I have little or whether I have too much or I'm right in the middle, he says, I've learned how to have contentment. Now, I'm gonna point something out to you, what he says. He says it twice, actually, in verses 11 through 13. He says, I have learned how to be content. And that is excellent news. Let me tell you why. Contentment is something you don't have to be born with. I think sometimes we think I got to be like Matt Hunter, who's always happy. You know, he always seems content. But if I'm not, well, it stinks to be me. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to be born with it. You can learn how to be content. It's something that you can receive. And and there's actually a secret to it. Paul told us a secret. He said in verse one, that I have learned the secret of being content. What's the secret? It's verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. The secret is when we walk with Christ Jesus, when we pray to Christ, when we trust in Christ, when we lean into Christ, then we find contentment no matter what is going on in our lives. Jesus Christ is our secret sauce to contentment. And we have the privilege of knowing him and and the more we walk with him, through the ups and downs of life, the more we know him, the more we discover contentment no matter what is going on in life. And he's trying to tell us If we want to be contented, it comes from knowing Christ Jesus. But here's the most beautiful part. When we know Christ, we find contentment. And when we find contentment, we find generosity, the very thing that pleases God. Have you ever noticed how the the happiest people tend to be the most giving people and the unhappiest people tend to be the most taking of people? it's, It's always true. The people who tend to give the most, they just seem to be the happiest people. And sometimes you're wondering, are they happy because they give or do they give because they're happy? Well, maybe it's a little bit of both, but here's why I want, I want you to know. If you are content, happy in the things that God has given you, then you can freely give because you don't need those things any longer to be content. So when you're contented, you can now give. It's when you're unhappy and you think you need more that you constantly bring back to yourself. That's why I said the first rule is you cannot be generous without contentment. But here's the second rule you need to know. That, that, that's an important rule, but it's not the most important. The second one is actually more important. First one, you cannot be generous without contentment. The second one is you cannot be generous without faith. It is impossible for you to be a generous person unless you have faith that God will supply your needs. By faith, I mean the understanding and confidence and conviction that God is who he says he is and that he will meet every need of yours as long as you're living for his glory. This is exactly what he tells the Philippians in verse 19. Go back to that verse. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what that means. It means you cannot outgive God. It'd be really fun to try. But what you'll discover is you can't do it. He will always give more to you. You can't outgive God. Why? Because his pool is deeper than yours. He's got an ocean he can draw from that never runs dry because he pulls according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus, an infinite pool of resource. And he'll supply every one of your needs through it. That word supply, and my God will supply every need. That Greek word, it it literally means to fill to the brim, to completely fill to where there is no space left. You're not lacking anything. Here's what it's saying. Paul is saying, God, he doesn't give to you half-heartedly. He knows what you need, he has what you need, and he delights in giving you what you need. That's the kind of God we serve. That should get you excited. Now, again, another one of those, I gotta take a time out and I gotta be cautious because there is so much abuse. I I think people abuse verse 19 as much as they do verse 13. There are these prosperity gospel preachers and what they teach is, what this is saying is that God's gonna meet every single desire of your heart. That as long as you give, God's gonna give back even more to you. Let me just say this. If you ever hear anyone tell you that if you give money to God, God will give more money back to you, that person is a crook and a fraud. Do not listen to that person. This does not say that God will meet every single one of your desires. He says he'll meet every one of your needs. And I want to guarantee you that is true. I've seen it in my own life. I remember probably the place where I saw the most of God being radically generous toward me and meeting my need was when my family stepped out in faith to be generous, to bring a child into our home. It was our first adoption of our son, Max. And it was an incredible step of faith. One that I realized without faith, I wasn't going to be able to be generous because it was scary. So at the time, my, my income, we were a one income family. Uh, I was working here at Fielder. I was somewhere between the forty five dollars to $50,000 range was my salary at the time. And, and that was just enough, you know, if you think back to that whole, that whole uh, bell curve that I was talking about. We were making well below the $75,000 range. We were barely making it. We were a family of four. We were squeaking by. We weren't able to save anything, but we had what we needed. But, but it, was, it was tight. And we found out when we wanted to adopt Max that it was going to cost somewhere between twenty-five dollars to $35,000 to adopt him. And i, I got to be real with you. Like, I, I did the math in my head. It didn't work. It wasn't going to be possible. We didn't have any bandwidth to do that. And for us to be generous was going to require a radical faith. And by God's grace, my wife and I stepped out into it. We said, okay, God, we're going to trust you, but you're going to have to provide. We don't know how to do it. And I want you to know God supplied every single one of our needs. I could literally tell you a dozen stories that will blow you away, but we don't have time for that. I'm going to give you two of some of the stories that God showed me that he's gonna supply every need. First one came in our very first time, we had to give a large chunk of money to this. So the way the adoption process works, you kind of have moments when you got to give certain amounts of money during the process. And we were on a pretty tight schedule because we wanted to adopt Max. I'd met him on a mission trip. We felt like God telling us to adopt him, but we had to act quickly because his file could have been sent to a different agency and someone else could have adopted him. So we had to meet the deadlines as they were coming. The very first one came and we were supposed to give $5,000 at the end of a week that we had only $3,000 in our bank account. But they told us, listen, you don't have any more time. In one week, you got you to provide the $5,000. Listen, we didn't know what we were going to do. The only way we even got to $3,000 was by like selling pizza cards, having fundraisers. Our small group did a, a 5K uh, sponsorship run for us. They called it Run for a Son. It was great. And they, we, they blessed us by raising up some dollars. And that's how we got to 3000 And that took months. We had no clue how we were going to get to $5,000. In that week, we were told you got one week if you want to keep the timeline to do it. We got a, a mail, a piece of mail, a little letter that came in. And on the top of it, it said Chesapeake on it. Now, if you've been in Arlington for a while, you might recognize that was the name for they were drilling underneath, pulling out natural gas. And we had just a little bit before signed a contract with them that they had to pay a certain price to be able to get the gas underneath our home because we had the mineral rights to it. And so that we opened up that letter from Chesapeake the very week we needed it. And it was a check for about $2,500 the week we needed at least $2,000 to get it. And God came in just the right time to give us exactly what we needed. We were able to send that $5,000 off and still have a little bit extra in our savings account. And it was so beautiful that God waited to that moment to show he's going to supply us with everything that we need. But it didn't stop there. The next one that we had, we needed to have another $5,000 a few months later. And we were even worse off. We only had about $1,000 in the bank at that point because we just couldn't put any more in there. We were barely crimping by. And so we we tried to do what we could. We asked people around. There was just no way. We we had about two weeks before that money was due. And we were just at our, our wits' end. Now, we had planned a few months before that to to travel, my wife and I, to San Antonio. And we were going to Max Lucado's church in San Antonio. And the reason why is because our son, Max, was named after Max Lucado. It's a very cool story. But Max Lucado had gone to China, and he visited our son, Max, in the orphanage. And they got along so well, they named our son after Max Lucado. And so we'd gotten connected with Max Lucado, went over there so that we could tell our story of how we were adopting the, the child that was named after their pastor. It was on a Wednesday night. And by the way, Max Lucado is one of the nicest, the most humble people you will ever meet. And it was such a great encounter with him as we're sharing the story. And we share it with the church body. It was so great for us to get to remember God's calling to this. But we hadn't talked anything about any kind of money. And, and, and with Max Lucado, no, we didn't talk about anything. But right when we were done, he came up afterward. And he said to his congregation, guys, I, we don't normally do this. And I hadn't planned this. But, but while Jason and Virginia were speaking, the spirit told me we're supposed to take up a collection for them and offering for them. So I'm going to put a basket down in the front. And if you feel compelled to give, just you can walk up when the service is over and just put something in and we can try to bless them. And so we milled around for a while. And after we felt like we were done with that, we went to the front and we counted what was in there. And it was $3,000 in one night that was given to us. And that was good enough. But as we were walking out on our way back to the car, there was a lady who walked up to us and she said, hey, I, I just wanted a chance to talk to you face to face. I'm a single mom. I've been going through some hard times. And God has really taken me on a weird journey over the last couple of years. He's asked me to save money for something, but he hadn't told me what it is. So for, for two years now, we've, I've been saving money that I felt like, oh, God, I could use that for something else. And he's told me really clearly, no, earmark that for something. And I'll tell you what it is when the moment arrives. And she said, tonight, God spoke to me and said, it was to give this money to you. And so God's telling me to give you this check. And she handed us the check, and it was a check for $2,000 dollars. And so we walked away with $5,000 that night. And first of all, we're like, no, no, ma'am, we can't take this. You need this money taken. She says, absolutely not. Don't you dare rob me of this moment. God has spoken to me. You need to take this. We're so blown away that God would provide for us right when we needed. it. He did it again and again and again. And what shocks me is that if I hadn't taken that step of faith, I would have missed God's miracles. I would have missed all the ways that he provided for us. I wouldn't have seen a lick of it. But when I had the faith enough, To be generous, I got to see God supply every single one of my needs. Without faith, you're not gonna be generous. But when you operate in faith, it will lead you to be generous and you watch God supply your needs. And here's the best part. Not only does he he supply your needs, but he also shows you how he'll use your generosity to impact other people. One one of the most exciting things about this this whole concept that we went through in generosity with bringing Max into our home has been other families in our church who have come up to Virginia and I and said, I just wanna tell you, Watching you on your journey has led me and my family to bring a child into our home. And there are children in our church and I get to see them and I know that part of the reason they're in that family is because God took us on a journey because we had the faith to say yes to God. And I can't tell you what that means to me, to know there are children in other homes that other people are impacted simply because Virginia and I said yes to go on a journey of generosity. Here's what I want you to know. It's the third thing I want you to know. You cannot be generous without making an impact. I guarantee you, you will make an impact. You cannot be generous and that not make an impact. It will time and time again. I love how Paul, he ends the letter up with just a small little glimpse of how he makes his impact. I want you to go to verse 22 again. I want you to read this. It'll be hard to see it at first, but I'll explain it. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And you're going, what is that talking about? Well, that little comment about Caesar's household was a comment about impact. What you got to remember is that Philippi was a Roman colony. They idolized Rome. The vast majority of the people, all the people who were non-Christian, they treated Caesar as a god. They loved him. And here are all these Christians who are being persecuted because they don't consider Caesar a god. And they're wondering where God is at. And here they've given to Paul, who's in Rome, they've given a love offering, sacrificially, been generous with Paul. And Paul says, the the believers who have invaded the house of Caesar send their greetings. Saying, I want you to know that your generosity has impacted the very seed of it all. Take courage. Your generosity is making a difference. And I love that truth. You and I can know our generosity will always make a difference. We we, we have a chance. When we give to Fielder Church, we can know that it's going to make an impact. There will be more people who will be in the kingdom of God, more people in heaven because we're given to this cause. There will be more churches planted. There will be more people groups who haven't ever heard the gospel who will hear the gospel because of our giving. Our giving makes a difference. It'll always have impact and that should move us to give. But listen, I, I want to give you one last thought, the fourth and final point. I want you to know All those things are true. Absolutely, we can please the heart of God. We can be co-laborers. We can actually make an impact with our giving, but none of those will drive us to be generous more than this last fourth point. Here's what I want you to know. You will not be generous until the gospel has made an impact on you first. You will not be generous unless the gospel has first impacted you. Yeah, yeah, your generosity impacts others, but you will only be generous when the gospel has first impacted you. Here's what I'm saying. It is when you inhale the message of the gospel, God has been radically generous with you to save you from your sins when you didn't deserve it, to send his own son to bleed and die on a cross to save you. His radical generosity to you compels you to want to be generous with others, to want other people to know the good news of the gospel. When you inhale the gospel of the generosity towards you, you will exhale generosity toward others. That's why I believe there is no more fitting way for us to end this time that we have together than by remembering the generosity of God toward us through the Lord's Supper. So in just a moment, we're going to have a chance for those of you who are believers and the Lord's Supper is only for believers, for you to go to grab the supplies. So you're going to grab, make sure every believer has a piece of bread and has a cup. And we're going to remember the the gravity of God's generosity toward us that he would give his own son And the body reminds us to be pierced and crushed for us. And the cup reminds us for his blood to be shed for us. And as you see his generosity, my hope is it compels your heart to explode to say, God, I want to be generous towards you. I want to give towards your cause. And I pray your heart is stirred afresh as we get ready for it. But before we go to that, let let me say this. There are some of you right now who are watching this. I can guarantee it. I know it. And you have yet to experience the radical generosity of God towards you in the gospel because you haven't placed your faith in it. And I know this, I know there are many of you and you are struggling because you can't seem to find contentment in your life. And here's the reason why. You're looking in all the wrong places for it. You're looking for contentment in money and you can't find it there. You're looking for contentment in relationships and in in marriage and friendships and work and achievement. All these other places you want to find happiness, contentment there and it's not found there. There's a secret to contentment. I told you earlier, it's Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can give you contentment. He is the secret to finding contentment in life, and he wants to be yours, and he wants you to be his. He didn't make it hard. He says, I gotta confess your sins, that you are a sinner. You don't deserve him, but he loves you anyway. You gotta invite him to forgive you of for your sins and take over your life, and you'll get him and all the joy and contentment that comes with him. Listen, if you're ready to do that, all you gotta do is ask. He wants to hear You can ask him. But if you're ready to make that decision, we want to partner with you. God has called us as the pastors of this church to come alongside you and to shepherd you in this decision. All you got to do is let us know. We've made it very simple for you. You can get your phone out and you can just text the word next step to 94253. And that's a way for us, even though we can't be together in person, for you to reach out to one of the pastors. If you prefer, you can go straight to your computer to field.org slash next step, just like you see it on your screen. In a moment, during the last worship song, that that little thing right there that tells you next step to 94253 is going to be right there on your screen. So you can take the time you need to to reach out to us and let us know because we want to come alongside you and shepherd you and help you on this journey of faith. But please. Take a step of faith today. So right now, as we sing this last song, I want you to respond as you need to respond, whether it's remembering God's generosity toward you or receiving his generosity toward you. You do it, and when the song is over, I'll lead us in taking the Lord's Supper. Now's the time.